in the Gospel of John, and I want to invite you to just open your Bibles there, if you would, John chapter 14, as we continue our study, considering the Upper Room Discourse. Last week we looked at uh, that promise that Jesus is going to prepare a place, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life. Uh, And uh, as we continue on with this study, we're going to pick up in verse number 7 through 14 today. And you can follow along with me as I read. But I'm going to start reading in verse number 6. So John 14, verse 6, or yeah, 14, verse 6 through 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you know him and have seen him? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So many rich uh, truths and promises in that passage of Scripture. Uh, Let me ask you and begin this way. How do you know God? How do you see Him? What seems to be the fascination of humanity all the way since uh, the book of Genesis and throughout our history Uh, this kind of ambition to capture the reality of God or capture the likeness of God in some way or another. In fact, idol worship is just that, isn't it? It takes something, uh, whether it's our imagination or something that we perceive God to be like and project it into a piece of wood or gold or silver or whatever it may be. Uh, We want to know who God is. We want to know what God is like whether it's human resemblance or some kind of beast or some other alien kind of mixture of things, it is an attempt to see him, to see him. And, of course, this has plagued humanity. Even the patriarchs were not free from this. You know, Jacob fleeing his father-in-law, Laban, and his father chases after him, and, and lo and behold, his wife, his favorite wife, to put it that way, stole the father's deities, stole the father's uh, gods. And so Laban wanted his gods back, probably a fertility god that she took from his house. So it's no surprise, or it may be somewhat of a surprise to some of us, when Moses encounters this theophany, when God shows himself to Moses, all he is given, or all we're told in the Bible is is the presence of a fire in a bush that's not consumed. No form that we could mold or shape, nothing that we could take characters out of. There's, there's things that it may teach us the, uh, that God needs nothing outside of himself to exist, but in the bush, in the experience in Exodus 3, uh, we see no likeness, no image that we can look at. 
Moses is given the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the first uh, set of that, referred to as the first table of the law, it's forbidden to make any graven images or worship any other god to us. So it's no surprise when God gives the tabernacle, the instructions. Now this is the, the meeting place of God, God's presence among his people. And out of all the instructions, the pages and pages of instructions that's given to the children of Israel, there is no image of God in it. There's nothing to capture him, nothing to see per se. There's, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which is, comes closest to, to that capturing of who God is, but it is described for us as a, a mercy seat, more of a throne of God than, than an image of God. God often asked Israel, who is captivated by idolatry all throughout the Old Testament, what will you liken me Or to whom will you liken me to? And yet there is a desire, isn't there? Or is there not? Even seen in Moses, (laughs) even seen in Moses when he was at the, uh, at one of the toughest places in his ministry. Children of Israel had sinned grossly making a golden calf as he was speaking with God, receiving the law of God. And, And Aaron says, here's your God, Israel, a golden calf. And and of course, you know the story, it's ridiculous because Aaron's excuse is, I melted a gold and now walked this calf, I guess. As Moses comes down and as he deals with that situation, his his desire, his earnest desire is captured in Exodus 33 when he asks the Lord, show me your glory. And out of all the manifestations that Moses saw, there was still something more pulling at him, something more causing him to want to know more about God, to see him in some manifest way. I think that's what he was asking for. Let me see your face, your likeness. It was a bold petition and one that God did not grant him, surprisingly. Even though we find that that God spoke to Moses as one face to face, yet God's face, his likeness, his, it, would be, it would be veiled in front of him. There was a part of God that could not be seen. In fact, we see that in Exodus thirty-three nineteen through 23 as God responds. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What an encounter. Moses had what a gracious provision God has given him you can't see me and live yet there is a place by me a protected place by me where you can look upon me to a degree now we know in the Bible in the Old Testament that prophets saw some theophany or some vision of God in some way whether it was whether it's through a, a dream or or an angel of the Lord or a visitor of some sort Gideon and Abraham and others uh, even some remarkable scenes such as Ezekiel and Isaiah and all those theophanies were, were symbols and forms. They were veiled. They were brief. They were uncommon or rare encounters of, of God's manifestation of his own 
for his own redemptive purpose. But it was not truly who he was, not fully. In one sense, it was God writing in crayon or revealing himself in in a children's book so that the prophet or whoever might be able to understand something of the message which God was giving him. And yet here in John 14, we see Philip uh, conveying or or that that desire rising up in Philip in response to Jesus' words. We already looked at Jesus saying he's the only way to the Father. No one can come to him except through Jesus. Verse number 7, if you notice, if you have your Bible open in front of you, Jesus says this, if you had known me, you, uh, you would have known the Father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him, which Philip's like, seen him? I don't know if it registered that way uh, and him saying seen him, but but let's let us see the Father. Let him manifest himself to us. Let us see him and it will satisfy us, as some translations tell us. Well, we are reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 11, right? No one has knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son has shown him. And in this, Jesus equates knowing God to I think what we see here in seeing him to to know the father is to see the father no one knows the father and, and by implication no one has seen him except whom the son has revealed it is this vision this desire which Philip has and I think most of humanity in some form or another has to see God to see the invisible God but notice how Jesus Jesus answered this, and let me just say this, as, as given to us, we know more than the disciples know. What do you think about that statement? Well, you know how it is in a story when you're given more information by the author and, and the characters are just kind of coming along, and you, but you know, you know, because the author has told you. Uh, Philip didn't have John 1 pinned down. You and I have. In fact, if you've been here the past year and a half, however long we've been going through John, you remember John 1 tells us of this, this vision of God or this, this um, exclamation about the Son of God which the disciples are trying to work out throughout the ministry of Jesus' life. We know uh, in John 1, and John wants us to know from the very onset that Jesus is no ordinary man. You get that. In fact, he says in, in his beginning here, and you can turn back with me. Jesus won. Hold your place. As he, as he begins to describe for us the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he begins with this, this eternal view of God an eternal view of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And it's just a brief description, and, and you may be familiar with that language, and that's simply to say uh, that Jesus was not made, He was not created, but the Creator of all things. Philip is sitting here talking to uh, the divine word. Now, incarnation, he was in human form, yet nevertheless, here is the, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, or as the confessions speak of, the, 
one who is very light from very light or very God from very God. And so it might be uh, surprising when Jesus responds to Philip's remark, show us the Father by saying, you're looking at him. You remember in our reading this morning out of Colossians what Paul says as he tries to give us something of who Jesus is. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What was forbidden of seeing and looking upon God, Jesus is is the fulfillment. He is the, the possibility to look upon the face of God. Veiled in human form, nevertheless, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, according to Genesis 1, and I think given to us here in Jesus' words, is this implication that Jesus is that vision of God because he himself is God. He is the divine one, as we referred back to John chapter number 1. He is the same in his character, in his attributes, in his likeness in that way. Uh, They are uh, unified and as one person has said, may helpful to you, a word that was used, I think Kevin DeYoung said it, I don't know if it's an actual word, but it's the godness of God. And whatever the godness of God that the Father possesses, the Son also possesses. He is equal with the Father in character and likeness in His essence in His, in His being. And you see a little bit of that in verse number 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What you see in that language of dwelling in or that unity between the Father and Son, he's saying they're, they're together, they're unified. There's much you could say about that that is right and wrong, but nevertheless, there's something about the connection of the Father and Son, and I think it's, uh, I think it's pointing back to Jesus' divine nature. Not are they unified in essence or in their being or in character, but they're also unified in their purpose. And by that, I just simply mean that the Father and Son work in harmony. They not only possess the same godness or the same divine nature, but they also work together. Whatever they do, they do in harmony. They're not at odds with one another. You see that in creation, you see that in redemption, you see that and will see that in our glorification. They are working together for the same purpose, agenda, and outcome in all that they do. But you see the disciples didn't have John 1 as we said and and Paul hadn't penned Colossians by the point we get in this upper room. They saw the glory of Jesus but it was a veiled glory. They saw human flesh, and no doubt they would marvel at here's a man walking among them, eating with them, and yet is able to rebuke the sea, and it stopped, right? Like it's supposed to do. Obey. Or or one who does all the marvelous things that he does. and, And so you see sort of the tension of Philip, don't you? Show us the Father. Show us the Father. We ask ourselves, did Jesus becoming flesh distort his godness? Did it distort the vision or the knowledge of the Father, of the Godhead? Well, the answer with that in Jesus' words, no. In fact, Jesus assumes and even says to Philip, have I been with you so long in verse number 9 and you still do not know me, Philip? You should have known this. This should have been elementary to you, Philip, 
after all that I've done. In fact, John tells us in John chapter number 1 and verse number 18 that he has come to declare the Father, explain to us who God is. Now, he does that in all of his emotional responses and his character, his perfections, his experience, perfectly reflecting the image of God around him. But he offers for the disciples and for us two proofs. I think it's worth noting here. The first is, notice the words that I spoke in verse number 10. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's saying, you've heard my preaching. You've heard everything I've said, John. Even the statement of I am the only way, the truth and the life, or even the claim or the call to believe on me. And I've been sent by the Father. All that Jesus taught... Not just in the Gospel of John recorded for us, but everything they had witnessed. Jesus is saying, these are not my words, but they're the Father's words. I have come to speak on behalf of the Father. And we might say on behalf of the whole Trinity. In fact, we see that in earlier in, in uh, John chapter number 3 as Jesus refers to his words and his speech as words of God. You know... Peter recognizes something of this in, uh, in chapter number 6, doesn't he? When everyone's going away, what does he say when Jesus asks the 12, will you go also? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's something different about what he is saying. There's something life-giving about his words. In fact, Hebrews reminds us it's because God is speaking through him and spoke through him more clearly in these last days, Hebrews 1 and 2. And Jesus' words was a declaration of the uniqueness of his sonship. But he offers another witness, doesn't he, in verse number 10 and 11. He says, The words that I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. I'm not just doing my own thing. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And it's almost to say in one sense, if you don't believe on account of the words themselves, believe for the works. For the works' sakes, believe on account of the works themselves. And the fact that he is... And, and could you imagine walking with Jesus and, and, and Jesus saying to these servants at the very beginning of his ministry, fill these water pots with water and then tell them, go draw out the wine and give it to the, the, the chief of the feast? Or him come walking on water? Uh, everything Jesus did continually over and over, as um, Carson, one commentator said, was, was a signpost declaring the majesty, the glory, the, the supremacy of this Jesus. There was something different with him, so much so that even a blind man saw it in John chapter number 9. You might recall his words when those who saw the miracle and still denied and wanted to denounce and even murder Jesus, the blind man said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Lazarus being raised from the dead, all of these bore witness to something about Jesus, who he was. More importantly, the fact of his ability and his authority and his power, they pointed us to a greater work that he would do, and that's the spiritual uh, that's the spiritual work of redeeming us and restoring us. 
Uh, the physical in that sense was always a, a pointer to something beyond that, to something more significant and more permanent, even though it was invisible. Well, if Jesus couldn't convince his followers by the messages he preached, by the words that he spoke, then let them at least be convinced by the works that he did. Let me ask you a question again. How do you know him? Have you seen Jesus or God? Well, it's through the word of God, isn't it? The son. God sending his son into the world. But it's also through the word of God, the Bible. It is that latter record that points us to the former, the eternal word. And so why should we bother with this distinction? Well, one, I think, is because many people have a Bible, familiar with the Bible. Some of them discount the whole New Testament. And in all of that, they still don't know God. And the reason they don't know God is because they don't know Christ. Uh, They may use the Bible, distort it, take things out of it for their own opinions or to to kind of shield them up or prop them up in certain ways. But at the end of the day, possessing the Bible and you have no understanding of who Christ is, then you don't know the Father. That's what Jesus said. No one can know the Father except through me. In fact, we see that even in even in uh, religious circles that uh, in Judaism that hold to the Old Testament and the Torah and all of that. And yes, they miss the reality, the, uh, that, that revelation of God that's found in Jesus Christ. You and I must come to the Word to know God, but as we come to the Word, we must look into the Word humbly for the Word that is Jesus the Son. But also it's a reminder uh, uh, for us that Christ and his work in the New Testament is in agreement with all that God has said in the Old Testament. Uh, There's not like a whole bunch of things going on there that we just kind of cut half of our Bible or or, uh, a large chunk of our Bible away and say we don't need that. God spoke in harmony all the way through pointing us and preparing us for from the book of Genesis for Uh, for the gospel and the outwork of it to the nations. It may not at first seem so obvious and, and clear, but nevertheless, as we work through this and through the help of the Holy Spirit and study and work, we see how all through it, Christ is fulfilling what God has promised from the Old Testament. But I think also we need to be reminded, as we are here seeing Jesus as seeing the Father, Because at looking at him, we see the glory of the Godhead. We see the brightness and the beauty and the majesty of who God is. We see his attitude, his nature, his character, his kindness. We see his his fierceness, his his power. All of that is is bringing us not only into deeper fellowship of who God is, but, but deeper conviction about God, deeper knowledge. And surely that's our desire, isn't it? Would you know more about God? Are you satisfied with the level of understanding of who God is that you have at this present moment? And even for those of you that studied your Bible for years and decades, isn't there still more to know? You feel like you're still riding with crayons on a, you know, you go in those restaurants, they got one of those things on the table and they give you crayons. Well, they give your kids crayons. Some of you So if you take those crayons and you're over there drawing your own picture, I'm not saying that I've ever done that, but I'm just saying some of you probably have. But it's not our 
are growing in grace something of that? What life-giving aid is given to us in our knowledge of God? Well, I think even in the Old Testament, they that know their God shall stand firm and take action in the book of Daniel. How do we know God? How do we see him? Well, you see him through the word. You see him through Jesus Christ in the word. Well, there's something else he gives to us as he continues on with this. Not only in Jesus himself, and to see him is to see the Father because of his likeness, his words, and his work testify to that, but also in a powerful reflection of his continuing work through his disciples. That's probably a, a bulky statement for those of you who take notes. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, yeah, anyway. I'll give you what I have wrote down later if you want it. <clears throat> Notice he goes on in, in verse number 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Isn't that a, an amazing Amazing statement. Jesus here speaking to those who ever believe, which simply, as one preacher has put it, is just normal Christianity. Believing ones. Those who have come to put their faith and trust in Christ. And and that is a a description of all followers and disciples of Jesus, isn't it? Those who believe. The very purpose of, of preaching Jesus and having him his life recorded for us in John's account is so that we might believe, to, pro- to promote, provoke faith, and, and it should be a mark of all of us. Not just simply knowing things, but, but coming to see him for who he is and leaning in and putting our trust and, and our life into his hands, right? Isn't that the kind of faith that the Bible calls for? Not what we think of our Western mind, just kind of a assent to a certain fact like we do with, with stuff that we Google up that never bothers us or affects our life. It's not like that, is it? For the Bible, saving faith is that leaning and resting and trusting, putting your life into His hands and receiving from Him the life and forgiveness that He offers us. Now, it's worth asking you this morning, have you believed on Jesus? Have you worked that out? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? Uh, Is He your hope as it comes to your standing before God? And if that's not your case this morning, uh, don't be dismayed because we were all in that situation at one point or another. And I would just encourage you to meet with someone, talk to someone. There's many people here who would love to take the Bible. I would talk to you. Uh, what that means about putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And some of you may be like, yeah, I did that. I prayed a prayer when I was young. And, and, and you know, you did the thing. They give you a card and all that. It's great. That's it's, it's good. But are you now, are you continuing to believe in Jesus? How do you know that you put your faith and trust in Christ? Well, that, that's a noble question. Are you following Jesus now? Are you walking in his word? Do you have a love for Jesus? What about a love for his people? Well, now that's kind of meddling, isn't it? But how are we going to know you're his disciple? Didn't Jesus just tell his followers that you have love for one another, that you love one another? 
Now, I want to offer a little bit of grace there because I know when I say those words out loud and I hear them and I heard them in my study, I think to myself, boy, don't it, it feels like we were limping and crawling along the way. And, 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 and these may be, these graces may be in small portion in our lives at certain seasons. What I'm saying is following Christ does not equate to perfection. But if you are in Christ, if you are trusting him, there ought to be a measure of grace that has marked your life. And that's what I want to ask you. Is it present there? Now notice, it's not just believing that he says here, but he says, truly, truly, I said to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Maybe you recall Sermon on the Mount and Jesus telling them at the beginning of this that the church would be a, a city on a hill. I think some politicians stole that and, and uh, said a nation's supposed to be that. But he's talking to the church, right? City on a hill. And in that, he's trying to say that we will bring glory to God by our good deeds, Right? Not just glory in the sense of when you get to heaven, uh, you'll have this list of things you've done, receive rewards for that, and God will be glorified in that moment. It's the idea that even now, your life, your service, and your work will bring glory to God. It will illuminate or show the world who God is. Right? So the church is to be that witness to the world of who God is. Now he said works, and by that... We kind of wonder what in the world is he talking about that will do the works that Jesus does. What does he mean by that? Well, there's a, a lot of places we could go with that and say what he means by that. Uh, one, I would say this Christ-like action. I think we can at least say it's Christ-like action that we carry on. We will be joined in with Jesus' work in Christ-like action in this world. Now, he says we'll do those works and greater works, and it leaves us with a, a question. And just to be honest, I'm going to share where I've come to on this. Now, you may disagree with this. You're fine to do that, and you can, you can tell me later, and we can talk about it. But um, this is where I've come to this understanding of this. Because it's hard to believe that Jesus would say we would do greater works than him. Does he mean that we'll do more miracles than Jesus did? Does he mean that our works or even the disciples' works will be more supernatural in some way or some fashion than what Jesus did? I mean, how can you, how can you prove on raising Lazarus from the dead? You know, how, how do you compare with Jesus walking on water? Even the disciples and the many things that they did, in fact, they, they did, the apostles did work with great signs and wonders. And I think Hebrew affirms this. And let me read that for you in chapter number two. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now he's speaking of the disciples there. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. By my understanding, that's it's largely associated with the apostles and the early church. And so is that ours? Is that what he means by greater? 
it leads some people to believe that this message that Jesus gives in verse 12 and and following is a message to the apostles only. We're just kind of bystanders listening in on the conversation. So it doesn't apply to us, and I don't think that's true either. It can't refer to greater works in supernatural fashion. And Carson suggests, and and I think he may be right, uh, it can't refer to quantity. We'll do more stuff than Jesus did. Although it's possible because we live longer lives, the church has gone on more than Jesus. I think it has something more to do of the message that we preach and the power in which we will work. Think about it this way. When Jesus uh, entered into his ministry, his ministry ebbed and flowed with, with popularity. People loved him. They were fascinated by his miracles and the things that he did. And then they hated him when he started preaching to them. Isn't that about the size of it? Do you agree with that? Yet the early church and throughout church history, uh, the finished gospel message, and by that Jesus' death and resurrection paid in full, that gospel that is to be sent out into the rest of the world, has been gathering in people ever since. All kinds from every walk of life and every avenue. I think greater works means that the message they would proclaim, the ministry that they would be given to carry this this gospel and remission of sin, which was only committed to them after Jesus' resurrection. That's not to say that God does not work miraculously through prayer and other things that he does, even you see in our text that we'll look at next week. What it is to say is, let us not discount the significance of a changed life and converted soul. And some of you are a testimony to that. Now, I would point you out, but just think for a moment where some of you were 20 years ago and who you are now. now is that because you were smarter, because you were wise, because you try to straighten up? Well, maybe it felt like that in some ways, but at this point, looking back, is it not because the power of God is the gospel? And what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it is the dynamite of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. In fact, I think this is seen in Acts chapter number 1 when Peter stands up, preaches his gospel, or preaches Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and 3,000 individuals are converted, baptized, joined the church that day. Now, they weren't set up fully and didn't have a secretary, I'm sure, at that time to take names and numbers and fill out cards. But what we see there is the dramatic response of Christ being raised from the dead and ascended on high, the message of forgiveness of sin, the message of a risen Savior. Well, whatever greater works means in one sense... It at least means that is what God has commissioned us to declare the glory of God in our day. The power of God. He does break through sometimes and does some things. We just scratch our head, doesn't he? People with cancer and people in sickness and answering prayers in certain particular ways and and moving in unexplained ways for his own glory. Um, But often the normal power of God is displayed in in what seemingly is the The simple act of someone putting their faith and trust in Jesus. The opening of the eyes of the blind. Back in chapter number 9, 
Is that not a reminder of his opening of the eyes through the power of the gospel of those who are spiritually blind in our day? You say, well, you're just dismissing everything supernatural. I'm not at all. There's a lot of stuff that goes on I don't, I don't understand. But one thing I do understand is that there is a mighty work through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is the only hope that we have. You see, Jesus is ascended into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. They're purchasing us the, uh, purchasing for us this great good news so that we may say there's forgiveness to be had with God. There's forgiveness to be had with God. He is going to the Father and therefore securing for us this great provision of the gospel and the power of God unto salvation to change a life, to change a family, to change a culture. And notice what he says at the end of this. You're not doing this without me. Now, he'll say more about this, and we'll talk more about that next week, but you're not doing this without me. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what are you asking for in the name of Jesus? How are we to carry out the the ministry that God has given to us? And not just declaring and and witnessing through our our lips, but our lives as well and our good deeds, all encompassing what it means to be a Christian, a light in a dark world. How are we to carry that out? Well, through the empowerment of Jesus Christ. Now, the empowerment of him. That's what he's saying. You'll not do this on your own. God has not commissioned us to do what we can do. Do you believe that? You think about the mission he gave the disciples. Wouldn't you be scratching your head like, how in the world am I going to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations? Well, you're not going to do that by yourself. You'll see that in John 15. In fact, you can't do that by yourself. You're going to do it through the continual empowerment of the Son. Ask, and it shall be given. Now, is that a blank check? Is Jesus giving you a blank check and me a blank check? Just whatever you want, put it on there, and I'll take care of it. What do you think? Well, I would say no. Because the word of God does not contradict itself. Whatever we ask in his name, whatever we ask according to his will and consistent with his character and for the progress of his work, he will give it. Well, there's many things we can do and we need to be doing, but before we do any of them, there's nothing we can do until we pray. Amen? I think that's a good reminder Uh, to us, not only to close in prayer, uh, but to begin in prayer, to continue on in the midst of what God's called us to do in prayer. How do we see and know God? Well, through his word. Through his word, through faith in Christ, and that's carried out, given and shown to those who know Christ, his followers, that's committed to his work and his ways. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. Pray you'd bless it according to your will. Help us today to glorify you in our rest and in our conversations and all that we are engaged in. Lord, I pray that you would be honored. Help us as we seek to carry out your will in in the vocation and in the situation you've placed us in. I pray that you would be glorified in that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.